This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Sportful. I'm your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me, as ever, is Mr. James Spender. Good afternoon, Joseph. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. And today we've got a new co-host. She's no relation to Andy Cole, Joe Cole or Nat King Cole, but her name is Emma Cole. So welcome along, Emma. Hello, thank you for having me. No problem. And our guest on today's show is ultra cycling phenom Fiona Colbinger. But before we get talking to her about winning Transcon, racing between two volcanoes in Italy and other such adventures, we're going to go into some of the stuff that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James, Emma, thanks for joining me as ever. Uh, it's a bit weird for us, James, because it's not just us two staring at each other. We've got a third person on this Zoom call this time in the shape of form of Emma, who is there also on our Zoom call. Yeah, also on our Zoom call. We're all going to talk over each other, I'm sure, because we haven't done this before. But um, yeah, just to say, uh, introduce Emma. She is editorial assistant for Cyclist Magazine and also a pretty skilled web writer, uh, now a pretty skilled podcaster. Um, she joins us in a very professional looking setup in a shared working space and she's ultimately kind of putting us to shame frankly so uh i suggest yeah google some of the stuff that she's written it's very very good um you know that's why i employed her because we thought she was pretty top notch um but emma thank you very much for coming along because i couldn't do this uh interview which is coming up later um and also it was your lead so beat yourself up no, it was. And Fiona's great. She's a she's a brilliant ultra cyclist, and I just think she's so inspirational. She's what like twenty six now, um, and she's just smashing out all these incredible records and all these incredible Strava um, rides. So, what's not to love, really? Made me feel old, James, because she's uh, the current Transcon winner, training to become a, a, a cancer surgeon, mm. and she's younger than me. So, and I'm younger than you, James. <laughs> You'd have well, felt even older. Well, this segues nicely into things that I don't like. Is uh, It was my birthday last week and I turned 37, which makes me feel really old. Did you? I, I did. Yeah, I did. Can't you tell? Oh, I wouldn't have put you Can't over you a day of 34. I look wiser. Surely I look wiser. Oh, you always looked wise, James. Thank you very much, Joe. But um, I hate birthdays because they're basically a kind of yearly audit as to who likes you. And I feel the numbers dwindle year after year. Who didn't like you this year but did like you last year? I don't want to name names. I don't want to name names, but... You know, you can always rely on your family. Something you do like, because you told us what you don't like, and that's getting a little bit older. Um, Brussels sprouts. That's weird. Is it? Yeah, because I've, I've seen you. You're, you're the man who used to sit opposite me in the office and consume two to three kilos worth of raw vegetables per day. 
So the fact that you don't like Brussels sprouts surprises me. No, 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 no. You know, this is what I do like. Oh, you I do like, like... older. I do like Brussels sprouts. Our first round of the seasonal sprout came my way at the weekend. And a Brussels sprout, four times more vitamin C, mate, than an orange. Really? To be fair, I do love a Brussels sprout. I'm a big fan. How would you cook them? Well, I'm a bit old school, but I do quite like a boiled Brussels sprout. But then I also do like, you know, like you pan fry them, give them a bit of a charring. That's also what I do like. But there's a really good recipe where you put Brussels sprouts and halloumi. Oh. Highly recommend. It's in my favourite cookbook, The Green Roasting Tin. Magic. Big fan. Squeaky and farty. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Emma, you're up next. Give us something you don't like and say you do like. I don't like... I don't really like the wind chill that's happening at the moment. It's kind of grinding my gears a little bit. Um, and I really don't like the traffic and all the traffic lights and the lorries. Um, I've just moved back to London and I'm really not... It's not It's not doing things for me. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so that's been a bit aggravating. Um, so, yeah, that's my I do not like. And I do like... Um, what do I like? Well... Uh, I've been playing, playing a bit of tennis recently and I'm really enjoying a cross-court backhand. It's my favourite shot and I just love it. So <laughs> satisfying. <laughs> you can even do a backhand. What do you mean? I bet you're going to tell me you can serve by jumping in the air and getting it in on the other side. Well, <laughs> I do really like tennis. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so very I'm impressed. Really... I'm very, I, just, I do like hitting a tennis ball, but backhands, it's the change of grip thing. And it's cross-court. It's my favourite shot. It's un- it's just so satisfying. Are we talking? Are we talking? Are we talking? Are you a are you a single handed backhander? Or are you a double hand backhander? More of a double handed, but occasional single handed, but double handed backhand cross court is my favourite shot. Interesting, tenuous link here to tennis and cycling. I go to the pub with a bloke who's the tennis coach of Brian Smith, the commentator and former pro, former British national champion's son. There you go. That's, that's, that's it. That's, that's the anecdote there. <laughs> well, there we go. Another little, little uh, tennis-related fact. He also, he also, here we go, he was also Emma, uh, Emma Radonkanu's coach because Emma Radonkanu's from my neck of the woods. Is she? Oh. She's a Brom- Bromley slash Orpington girl, yeah. Anyway, on that note, how about you, Joe? What are you liking, disliking? Uh, I've got quite a long list of stuff I'm liking, none of which is cycling-related, uh, mainly because I've just not been cycling recently because of that wind. It's been cold, been a bit rubbish. I've been running a lot more, playing football. So I've been using a Chorus Versus watch, like a really expensive smart watch that does stuff like cardiograms on the move and controls your Spotify, tells the time amazingly as well. It's actually a really good bit of kit. We uh, featured it in the mag, I think, an issue or two ago now. And I've been putting it through its paces. And it's really good for those of you that don't just cycle. If you do other stuff, if you do running, swimming, hiking, it means that you can track all of your stuff on one handy piece of kit. Um, So, yeah, that's pretty good, actually. Been liking that. Also been liking um, And Away, the autobiography of Bob Mortimer which I've been listening to on an audio book. It's actually a lot sadder than you'd expect. Is it read by Bob? It is read by Bob, which is excellent because he tells plenty of stories in it where you don't know if they're true or if they're fiction um, in classic Mortimer stylings where they're so absurd that the only possibility could be that they are true. Um, I'm also enjoying some television at the moment. Just got into Mad Men. 
about 15 years too late. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> also just started watching Band of Brothers, which is 20 years old. And uh, what was the other one? Staff Let's Flats. That's it. Excellent. Channel 4 comedy. 22-minute uh, episodes written by Jamie Demetriou about a Greek letting agent. It's very funny. Um, good one to watch over dinner if you like to watch TV over dinner like I do. Uh, rather than just talking to the person opposite you. Um, and some things that <laughs> some things that I'm disliking, mainly the cold weather, because I haven't been riding the bike as much because of that weather, because I am uh, soft in a way. Um, and I'm not liking the fact that there's no bike racing on television. I'm pretty bored. It was also the international break for football last week, so there weren't even a West Ham game on to watch. Instead, we just had to watch England beat San Marino 10-0, which was really pointless. It reminded me of my own football team that loses 6 or 7-0 most weekends. Mm. So, rather that didn't happen, but it did. But who cares? It's only <laughs> an insignificant bump in my life, and everything will be better soon, because it'll be Christmas and you'll be able to eat Brussels sprouts with pancetta or halloumi, depending if you're a vegetarian or not. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I'm so very pleased for you, Joe. Sounds like your life is just one massive uptick. It always is, James, yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing gets you down. <laughs> not really. <laughs> <laughs> but um, enough of me having a sort of ramblings <laughs> about my life. Uh, we should probably get on to the interview of Fiona Colbinger. She's much more interested in all three of us combined because she's 26, is an oncologist, can ride really far across Europe in, with limited amounts of sleep. Um, and she likes to sleep in the entrance hall of supermarkets and get woken up by delivery drivers in the early hours. So let's listen about that. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to chat to Emma and I. I know you've already spoken to Emma before and she spoke to us about how great your chat was and was like, well, it would make a great podcast. So let's get you on. So uh, you're in Dresden, right? Yes. That's where you're based. That, which is in like the proper east of Germany, isn't it? It's quite close to the Polish border. <laughs> it's like proper as eastern as it gets in Germany. Yeah, but like, I mean... It's not bad. <laughs> I, I don't know what you um, what you heard about Eastern Germany, but I think I don't know how. I actually don't know how it is in Britain about people knowing things or not knowing things about Eastern Germany or having having prejudice or uh, a stereotype in their in their head, like people just eating bananas once a year um, <laughs> because they don't get other fruit all the time. And then once there comes a, a huge bunch of bananas and everyone just keeps eating bananas. I've, I've never heard of that. Well, I mean, in the, in the, in the former GDR, um, they actually didn't have all... Um, all the foods all the time so um yeah they basically got some foods one day and some other foods the next day so what, what some what some people here wanted to have is fruits from the south which is called in german Südfrüchte. and um well that was something that was out of the ordinary and when Südfrüchte came, so these fruits from the south, such as bananas, that was a huge celebration. Um, yeah, but that's not the case anymore. What's Dresden best known for? Because I know that like the west is quite industrial, isn't it? 
places like Dusseldorf and Dortmund, Cologne. So what is Dresden and the East sort of known for? Is it agriculture? Is there anything in particular? To be honest, if you're asking what it's internationally known for, it would be having been bombed in the Second World War, like super heavily. Um, I believe more than half of Dresden's surface was destroyed um, and was pretty late in the war. So, um, yeah, that was, um, and a lot of civilians lost their homes. So uh, that was quite a bad moment. And still every year uh, on those days in February, um, the bells are ringing for um, a long time. So it's like still remembered uh, every year. But like um, looking at the monuments that are based in Dresden and that were in part destroyed um, during that bombing, but that were rebuilt um, afterwards. There is this um, church called Frauenkirche. So it's a um, it's a monumental church, very, very beautifully rebuilt. Yeah, and then there is a lot of culture in Dresden. For instance, um, the opera, there is a, a palace um, in Dresden. So the uh, entire old town uh, has been rebuilt uh, and that's very picturesque and um, it's actually really worth a visit. That's awesome. Have you been to the opera? Have you been to see one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I actually don't enjoy opera that much, but I, I really enjoy classical concerts. So um, uh, I actually like going to that uh, Sempa Opera, which is what we call it. So I think, Fiona, it would be a good, ex- good time to kind of explain who you are. And I think the best thing we can always do is get the person themselves to explain who they are. So Fiona, give us a brief 20-second summary of what you are in regards to cycling. Yeah, so I'm Fiona Kolbinger. I am um, 26 years old. And um, in cycling, I'm best known for having won the transcontinental race two years ago, so in 2019. So, and you were beyond just the TCR, you were the first female to win TCR. So it was, so the 2019 route that you did was from Burgas in Bulgaria, wasn't it, to Brest, in the very far west of France, as west as you can get almost in Europe. Um, and your route was 4,000 kilometres, give or take, 40,000 metres of elevation, which is incredible, with climbs including you did the Gardena, the Timuljoc, the Galibier, um, and you did it in 10, hour, 10 days, 2 hours, 48 minutes, which is um, quite some going. Um, how... When you were doing the TCR, what, what point in those 10 days did you think, actually, I might might win here? Because you didn't turn up thinking, actually, I'm going to race for the win. You just turned up thinking, oh, it'd be a nice time to ride from Bulgaria to France. Yeah, I, I mean, my, my goal was doing it fast, but um, I, I never thought I could do it that fast. So I think um, the first time I actually realized that I'm good at this or like seriously good um, that was at the first checkpoint so the first checkpoint was after about 250 kilometers um, still in Bulgaria and I um, well I mean I had a good time until then I had been doing quite few stops which is something that is important in these races and then I arrived and so the TCR has a podcast team and the podcast guy basically came up to me started a chat and he asked me so well done um do you know which position you're in and I was like well 
I saw a couple of other riders before me, like ahead of me. I saw some behind me and, well, I mean, not too many people overtook me, maybe like 20 or 30. And then he was like, no, you're number five. And then I was massively surprised. I basically, yeah, didn't expect that at all. And then, um, but still like number five is for four more places ahead of you until you win it and that's um that can be quite a large gap in these races because in the front like the race um gets very spread out um and yeah then basically the first few days went by and nobody really went faster than I than I did and um then in Austria on the fifth day I kind of took the lead so it was in the morning and I saw some so I there is a tracker page on which you can see the position of each rider um, in every moment of the race quite in real time or with a very brief delay and um, I saw that around me there are two other guys Jonathan Rankin and Ben Davies and then I actually met Ben so we were cycling on the same um, road and we had a nice chat for like half an hour or 20 minutes and then I turned left and he he went straight and I never saw him again until the finish um, we just took different ways around a lake in Austria and my way was probably a bit faster and then um, this second guy that was ahead of me Jonathan He, um, well, I basically think I saw his rear lights. I still didn't really reconstruct the whole situation, but like, I just saw his rear lights or rear lights of someone with a heavily packed bike ahead of me. And then the next time I, I looked at the tracker, I was ahead of him. So um, I think maybe he, he just took a rest stop, I don't know, at a gas station or so. So I, I didn't see him again uh, either so at that point I took the lead and then I saw on the tracker that now I'm leading this race and I think that was when I actually considered um, that this is a possibility if I just keep going and nobody turns up having a turbo. <laughs> I mean that is pretty epic and it's also insane considering that was your first ultra race and um, so kind of When you went into it, did you come across anything a bit scary? Any sort of, I don't know, stray animals at all? Because, I mean, being your first one. It was actually not only my first ultra race, but my first cycling, like competitive cycling event, like ever. Um, so, yeah, I think everything is scary about this when, when you first um, go into this, because I mean, my experience was quite limited. I had done um, London, Edinburgh, London, which is a so-called brevet. So I did that in 2017, but that is a whole different story because you can you can ride in groups, you can draft, you have a given route that you can follow, and you have some like checkpoints at which you can get some food, you can sleep. It's quite well organized for you. You don't need to take care of anything really so it's a great event but it's a different character than the TCR because it's just not competitive and um, also with mechanicals so I was massively scared of um, not being able to fix my bike I got so obsessed about it that I, I insisted on 
doing like everything that had to be done on the bike myself. I never gave it into someone else's hands without carefully watching what they were doing because I just thought I I need to know everything of this if that happens to me on the road. And I think I gained quite a lot of um, competence doing this, like basically just watching other people repair my bike or having people just tell me how to repair my bike. Um, so, yeah, that was important. And I was really scared of that. And then um, I actually didn't think too much about dogs. I'm not basically scared of like generally scared of dogs but um, I think it was good that I didn't think too much about it because there were quite a lot of dogs um, and what you can do is just stay calm and ride on because um, usually what the dogs are barking about is the the turning wheels I mean they are known to humans they don't attack uh, any random human in the in the street. Um, so what they are not used to is seeing one of these guys on a bike, which is turning and making sounds. So what you can do is you basically have two options. Either you just sprint out the dog, which usually works if you are <laughs> like fit enough in that given moment, which works in the beginning of the race, I can tell you, but it doesn't necessarily work at the end of such a race. So I was quite happy that the stray dog part of Europe which is the Balkan <laughs> came in the beginning. So that worked for me most of the time. And then the second thing that you can do is just slow down and get off your bike and like push your bike. But of course this requires, um, yeah, you just need to dare. Yeah. You need to be calm. Having a barking dog. Like it's a physical contact with a, a dangerous animal <laughs> or a seemingly dangerous animal but usually they just bark they don't attack you and did you your route did you plan it because you have to plan your own route to hit certain checkpoints when you're riding and you're tired physically and mentally you've also got to consider the fact that you're on open roads with normal traffic so were you planning your route to try and take in quite a route where there'd be less cars less traffic or were you going trying to look for the quickest route A to B? What? How are you sort of judging that? Yeah, that's a good question as well. And I think um, my route could have been optimized. But um, quite generally, I don't really mind riding on larger roads. I think they are not that unsafe. Um, I mean, of course, you're exposed to drivers, which may be dangerous, but also on smaller roads, if you have an accident, nobody finds you. The road surface is usually worse, um, which means you have a lot of potholes or a road just doesn't exist that you thought existed, which may be the case, um, especially in countries in which you can't have a look on Google Street View, such as Serbia. Um, so yeah, quite generally, I prefer larger roads. So I basically, uh, so what I did was I took different route planners, Komoot, Ride with GPS, Strava. I, I relied a lot on Strava at that time. I don't do that anymore, but and, but I think the Strava route planner actually, um, it improved a lot during the last few years. So um, yeah, but at that time it was not that advanced and they basically just entered A and B. So for instance, between the start and the first checkpoint. And then I just compared what these different programs gave me as a suggestion. And then I had a look 
where the differences were. So if there was a hill in one and no hill um, at the same place um, in the other suggestion, they had a look at why that was and what kind of roads they chose. And then if I really couldn't decide for one or another, meaning like considering how large the road was, if that was tolerable for me, um, then I would go on street view, have a look. Um, and sometimes I would just take the one that looked better from the numbers point of view. So the shorter one and the less hilly one. Yeah, but I ran into 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 some little problems. So um, I also got penalized by the TCR um, for having been riding on larger roads than I was allowed to. So the TCR bans everything that is a motorway and I didn't cycle on a motorway. Um, but I cycled on roads on which it's not really allowed to cycle, um, which means it's dual carriageway. Yeah, yeah. I know that this is allowed in some places in, in the UK, I think. Um, but it's, yeah, like in Middle Europe, some roads, that so there is a blue sign with a car on it. And that means that basically only motorized vehicles can, can use that road. And I, like, I didn't spot that sign. I, I didn't want to do that. But yeah, I just ended up on one of these roads or a, a road converted into like, it just became one of these. Well, it didn't change its um, its appearance. So it had been that way all the time that it was allowed. And then one of these signs popped up. And I, I didn't have any way of exiting that road. So I need to stay on it for a given amount of um, distance. Um, so I got penalized for that. But what I want to say was basically, my road could have been better in some places. Well, I mean, it sounds like it was pretty good <laughs> overall. Um, and I guess along the route, did you plan rest stops? How long did you sleep for? And sort of what was it just over 10 days? Yeah, I um, didn't make a specific plan. So I knew that thinking about the concept of this race, it's necessary to sleep. So it's not a, it's not one of these races in which you just keep going forever and you don't sleep, um, which is which is the case on some of these shorter races, um, which are one in two or three or four days. And this is the kind of race where people don't plan to sleep, actually, or just like power naps at the side of the road. Um, so I knew I needed proper sleep at some point. Um, I needed to sleep probably every night except for the last one or the first one. But this is not a race in which you like start off being extremely tired and it gets better. Um, so I decided to sleep from the first night every night. Um, I had a sleeping bag with me um, to be spontaneous and also because I I felt that was the kind of adventure that I wanted, um, just having to have a look at where you can sleep and put your sleeping bag. Um, but that was all. So I didn't take a, an air mattress or anything. I basically just took my sleeping bag and um, it's a very thin one. So it was maybe like the size of two or three fists, quite light. And, and then I slept every night. And so out of the 10 nights or yeah, nine nights that I did on the TCL that I had on the TCL. I slept outside seven nights uh, and inside two nights. So in hotels. And I basically booked the hotels a couple of hours in advance um, on booking.com. So I, yeah, I didn't have any waypoints or it, it's actually also not allowed to pre-book hotels because that would have been preparation 
um, that is not really allowed within the rules of the TCR. When when you slept outside, I remember reading uh, James Hayden, who is also a previous TCR winner. He um, is quite well known for having a stopwatch around his neck. So he'd time himself when he was going into a shop um, and he would also time how much he would sleep. And he, I read once that he had to sleep behind a vending machine because it was so cold. He had to sleep behind the heater of a vending machine. So was there any point in them seven nights of sleeping outside? Was there? Did you find yourself sleeping in the middle of a roundabout at any point? Or were you always managing to find somewhere that was actually quite comfortable and and sort of hospitable rather than just in a car park or behind a vending machine? It was mostly um, in the grass somewhere um, when it was absolutely going to be dry. Um, otherwise, I had a look um, at some sheltered places. For instance, in, in Switzerland, I slept um, at a delivery entrance of a supermarket. And it was actually quite bad because at about four o'clock in the morning, the delivery truck came and I was lying at the entrance where the, this guy wanted to drive his truck into. So I basically was there in my sleeping bag without shorts on. So then, yeah, like I was in the front lights of this huge truck. And then like I didn't I didn't explain anything. I just got out of the sleeping bag, yeah. <laughs> put on my suckling shorts, <laughs> and I was off in five minutes. But it was yeah. No questions were asked. No no explanations were tried because like I he wouldn't have believed me. I, I would probably have ended up in psychiatry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, but that I would still consider that a proper sleeping place because it was sheltered and um, yeah, I wasn't freezing. I mean, it was in summer, so it wasn't that cold. The only night in which I really suffered and which I didn't find a good spot was the last one. So um, I kind of realized at about, two or three in the morning with about 70 kilometers to go, um, I would need to sleep because I was falling asleep on the bike. And um, yeah, the big problem was my phone ran out of power. So yeah, my phone was dead. I didn't like, I used my phone as an alarm. And I knew that from the last time I checked this tracker page um, that the second guy was about six hours behind me which is one big sleep. So, I mean, the problem um, was clear that I needed to wake up before having had a proper sleep. What I didn't know at that point was that the guy was also sleeping at that, yeah, like in that moment. But I, I mean, I couldn't know because my phone was dead and I was in Northern France in Brittany. There is nothing going on it was a, a it's very it's a very barren place I've been I've done I've ridden around Brittany it's incredible and it was so cold it was it was like coldest I really didn't expect northern France to be that cold it was um I think something like 10 or 12 degrees and I I was super tired so freezing more than usual anyways and yeah I just knew I needed to find a way to wake up after something like an hour or two because I I didn't need like a real big sleep, but just yeah, getting some last energy and some last some last rest before tackling the last uh, kilometers. And yes, I basically decided to lie down in that grass thing that was actually quite damp. 
and it was super cold, but I didn't put on a jacket or like I didn't go into the sleeping bag because my reasoning was I would get cold and then I would wake up quite quite soon after like an hour. And the plan actually worked. I woke up after an hour, but I was shivering all over my body. I think I haven't been colder in my life. Um, and that was, I think, looking back, that was quite dangerous because if I hadn't woken up, I could have had some major medical problems. Um, but seriously, I have thought about this quite a lot. And I don't know if there was a better solution to this problem because I, I didn't have an alarm clock and I needed to make sure that I woke up. So, yeah, I probably would have woken up as well if I had been in my sleeping bag and a bit warmer. But I would have probably slept at least two hours longer because I was super tired at that point. Um, yeah, so I don't, I, I wouldn't exclude doing that again, but it was not um, necessarily the smartest thing to do on the whole TCR. And I wouldn't, I, I, it's not advisable. <laughs> do you, when you're doing this event, so you rode from Bulgaria to France and you covered basically the, the throughout the Balkans and you ride through the Alps, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, France. Do you ever get a chance on at the TCR maybe not to in, absorb the culture and your surroundings? Because you're, you're in your head you're in race mode. Um, so do you get a chance to sort of look around you, kind of take in where you are as at all, or is it very much of a sort of laser focus sort of blinkers on? I believe that I do soak up some of the culture, but it would be ignorant to say that I saw Bulgaria on the TCR. Um, yeah, so I, what I kept thinking was that I, I really need to return to Bulgaria to do something in touring mode, covering something like 200, 300 kilometers a day, having a good rest every evening, sleeping in a hotel or meeting locals, really. But I think you do get a a feeling of how a country works while you're cycling through it, even if you're not doing major stops or you, you do have a, a few funny encounters with the locals. For instance, the second checkpoint that was in a hotel that basically served as this strange or like it, it seems strange to, to it seems strange to the middle European me because that wedding place where a wedding would happen every half an hour or so. So no, that that is an exaggeration. But um, it was like this place where sweaty TCR riders were meeting very very beautiful Balkan brides <laughs> and their party crew. Um, yeah, and I think so. I think uh, TCR photographer uh, James Robertson he he took a few brilliant photos uh, in that location because. It was that mix of the the wedding people with the TCR riders. It was insane. Yeah, like two total opposites, like two drastics, one extreme yeah. to the other. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you finished the TCR, how did it feel? Because, I mean, you've gone on this massive journey. You've gone through so many countries. Was it a moment of total relief where you like cycling to the finish line where you're a bit like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of done with sitting on this bike now? Or were you kind of like, okay, another day I'd be up for it? It was maybe a bit of everything, but um, I think that the dominant feeling that I remember 
Um, and also, I think the dominant feeling that I had in that moment was besides pain in the contact places with the bike. Um, <laughs> it, it was uh, actually sadness that this thing is over because I, it, I really enjoyed it. It was um, nothing that I um, had to push myself extremely doing. It was an extremely interesting journey that the T that I, I, I did on the TCR and it's somewhat sad and uh, at the end of such races that it, yeah you change your life back to normal um yeah worrying about normal things and needing to integrate into society in a way um because it's a very very free life and I um I enjoyed it quite a lot to not have any obligations and just spend the day riding your bike and doing nothing else. And then like the moment of finishing the TCR, um, yeah, it was a bit like the finish was in this Northern France youth hostel in a place where also not that much is going on on a Monday morning at eight o'clock. Um, so I basically arrived and while the morning rush hour was going on and well rush hour being an exaggeration again for breast um but like people were going to work um and it was so strange to to know that i have done this massive journey and that for me there's such a it's supposed to be such a big moment but it just doesn't feel like that it seem, it feels like i'm just riding to work some body parts are hurting a bit more but like I'm basically going somewhere by bike and then at this youth hostel there was um, a few journalists that had been waiting for me and basically um, the TCR organization or the, the organizers tried to get me a bit away or isolate me from them because I yeah I had been approached by quite some journalists on the road already and um, the TCR has a policy of giving out accreditations or like, yeah, um, uh, having just a few journalists allowed, like selecting them a bit. And um, as France is a very like cycling enthusiastic country, the interest was quite big and much bigger than it had been before. And of course, probably also because I was the first female winning the TCR overall. So um yeah, so basically they isolated me a bit and like took me inside um, at a back entrance. And um, yeah, then it was like a hug, you get your stamp and then you're done. And I loved it that way. Um, it's It doesn't feel like a red carpet ceremony. It doesn't feel like... The Champs-Élysées. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I didn't want it that way. So I think in that moment when you're basically alone with your thoughts you have been alone with your thoughts for 10 days and you are maybe even a bit sad that it's over you don't want someone like um having a photo shoot with you or like uh, sticking a camera in your face more than um you want and yeah so it's more like coming home to a family maybe that you have been getting to know over the last few days and one of the other beauties beautiful things about not just the TCR but ultra cycling is that nobody's a professional cyclist so everyone on that start line will have a regular job there'll be carpenters there'll be people that work in finance and then like yourself 
surgical oncologists. So you'll have, and because you are in your day-to-day life, Fiona, a, a surgeon, right? Yeah, um, so I'm training to be a surgeon. I'm now in my third year of um, surgical professional training. And how, so how do you, because that's, that's another big question is how do you mix what is ultimately, because before you came on, you was explaining you've been on a night shift, quite an intensive job being uh, a, you know, training to become a surgeon isn't a nine to five uh, per se. So how do you mix what is a very stressful, time-inducive, intense job with what is a very time-inducive, intense, stressful hobby? Um, I think one key thing is that I don't um, I, I don't consider cycling to be the stressful part of my life. So um, for me, it's not really that, like, it's not putting that much stress on me. I consider it a hobby. I don't have a training schedule or anything that I need to stick to. And I have to say, when I'm on these night shifts and when I'm in a phase where um, work is definitely dominant and taking taking up a, a lot of my my time, I I can't do these long rides. Just um, looking at the time, because if I want to do 400 kilometers, I still need a day like or two, because Afterwards, I don't want to to work like six hours later. So basically, in winter, what I do is running. Um, and at the moment, I I'm working on a yeah, an actually incredibly understaffed ICU. Um, so like a surgical ICU where patients come after their surgery if they need a bit of special care and um, some complicated cases come back to the ICU. Um, so we have 12 hour shifts and I don't manage to cycle a lot at the moment, but um, when I, when I have days off, I usually spend them on a bike. Cycling is just one of the major things I do in my free time. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. But I have to say one thing, when I did the TCR in 2019, I hadn't been working um, in that job yet so I was I actually started my surgical training on September 1st after the TCR so it was like three weeks after winning the TCR that I started working in that hospital the situation has changed a bit for me but that is what it's like now so I I do prioritize my work over cycling but I still manage to to do quite a lot of it because I just prioritize cycling over other things in my free time. Is it a release valve then when you get on the bike after a long day of working in a very stressful job when you get on the bike is it kind of like a a relief moment? It's a necessity. <laughs> Um, no, it, 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 it's just um, I just really enjoy cycling, and I I've realized that I I get more stressed when I don't do it. So um, I think it's a way of um, releasing some extra energy, or I don't know, but like um, getting my head somewhere else after um, after a long day. And sometimes when I when I actually don't have that much time, I just go to the river with my bike um, and just ride in the flat for an hour or so. I sometimes do that as well. It doesn't need to be an intense training moment every time I get on the bike. And I think that's, for me, the key to liking that all the time. Yeah, that's amazing. And do you find quite a lot of, I guess, quite a lot of similarities between your work as a surgeon and your sort of love of 
Ultracycling. Yeah. Um, so this has been asked quite a few times, and what I what I always say is, um, well, the same. You need to have the same strengths. You need to be able to eat a lot and then not eat a lot for some time. You need to be able to stay focused um, even without regular sleep hours or without the possibility to have eight hours of sleep every night. Um, and I think you just need to be physically fit to to be able to do the job. And that applies both to long distance cycling and to surgery um, because you do have long hours in the OR as well in which you can't just walk out and say, so yeah, it's now 5.30, I'm done, I'm going home. Um, and you can't always say in every situation, I need to eat something, I'm going out now. Um, if there is a bleeding that needs to be fixed, then the bleeding needs to be fixed. And if you're hungry, then you're hungry, but the bleeding still needs to be fixed. Um, and um, in, in ultra cycling, um, I also don't think that, I mean, you need to be physically fit to, to be good at it, but it's not the most important, yeah, the most important aspect of it. I think um, there is also a lot of strategic aspects to it, something like route planning, something like being able to sleep deprive yourself as well, or being well organized, just keeping your stops very, very short. So for instance, when I'm going into a supermarket, I always know beforehand what I want. And supermarkets are very, very similar in Europe everywhere, especially if it's like a, a large chain, something like Little or Aldi, they are always structured in the same way. So you know what you find where. And I wouldn't, for instance, get a banana, then walk to the cold, like the cool drinks, and then walk back to get an apple. But um, yeah, you just need to be structured in a way that you get the apple and the banana and then walk to the cold um, drinks and get your milk or whatever you want. So being structured in your head and knowing beforehand what you will be doing is something that is also needed in surgery because if you do a, a large procedure, which is not what I'm doing yet, but um, you always need to think before what steps will build on each other uh, or on the, the step before. With the on the topic of fueling, when you're doing one of these ultra races, when you do sort of a single day event, you can be quite you can take your own nutrition and you can optimize it, and you can be eating stuff that is you know maybe specifically made for cyclists but on these ultra events you're having to rely off the land basically and what supermarkets and shops can give you um so do you get to a point where you're just eating and consuming calories whatever you can get or are you always trying to eat stuff that you know is best for sort of riding a bike because i've i've sort of seen people that do ultra events who end up just eating McDonald's because that's all they have access to and they just need the calories and the salt. So what do you try and stick to sort of a more rigid sort of consumption or is it literally just getting calories into the body where you can? I'm the worst person considering food on the bike. Um, <laughs> yeah, I eat. Yeah, I mean, you burn so, so much energy on these races that you can't intake Anyway, so um, if you're burning something like 10,000 calories a day, you just need to break that down or like translate it into how much gummy bears or how much chocolate that would be. And 
yeah, it's more than anyone could ever, ever eat. Um, <laughs> but I do my best. So um, I, I always end up um, like eating crap foods just because you need the energy more than any other thing in your food. You don't like, I'm not that kind of um, ultra cyclist that ends up eating cucumbers. I do want to eat cucumbers, but then in the supermarket, I, I keep thinking, this has no calories. It's like zero calories for a lot of weight that you're pulling along. Um, so I basically end up eating a lot of chocolate bars. I spoiled Snickers by eating too many of them on the TCR. Um, I think I have been cited for like eating 50 Snickers bars in two days or so, and then like eating none for the next eight days. Um, but yeah, like chocolate is important. Gummy bears are important. And this does work for me. I think I have a, a quite resistant stomach and I can eat a lot of crap food until I get some problems. Um, yeah. And then I, one thing that I really like is milk drinks or yogurt drinks, um, something like, like Yop or Kefir. Um, this is really something I I drink a lot and I drank a lot on the TCR, something like two or three liters a day sometimes. And then bananas. Um, it's always great when you get proper food, something like a sandwich or a banana or um, even like pasta um, somewhere. But it's it's not a given. And especially it's not a given in gas stations where you don't get any fruit. Usually on the freshest thing is a a leaf on the sandwich. So if Fiona, apart from the bike, what is the most important piece of equipment that you take on these ultra rides? Is there something that you, obviously you can't live without the bike on it and the GPS, but is there something that you just live or die by when you're doing these events? I'm, I'm really thinking, um, I'm, I'm not taking anything super special. I have a lot of great kits um, by now. So the um the bags are great <laughs> but it's like nothing that i would mention uh, as a as a necessary thing so i of course it's important that you have something to repair your bike um you need a good multi tool um i recently discovered or like a friend recommended to me um a tiny leatherman like it's like a grasper um i don't oh, no grasper is not the right word um it's like a um something to hold things okay like pliers yeah 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 it's it's pliers and um uh yeah you can like fold it open and you also have a yeah you have things like a little knife you have a bottle opener it's like 50 50 grams yeah it's like this 50 gram multi-tool that is like if you need more than that then you have a serious problem like if, if you need more than that plus a multi-tool like a, a usual multi-tool with a lot of allen keys and stuff like that yeah then you have a serious problem um but yeah this is a quite cool thing that i i now take on every ride let's move away from that tcr and talk about what you're up to now so you most recently you did the two volcano sprint which for listeners is a race between Mount Etna and Vesuvius is it so did you go from south to north so did you go from Sicily up to uh just outside Naples yeah this time yeah this time it was that way but so it happened for the third time this year and the first two editions were the other way around so the first two editions went north to south 
Vesuvius, Etna. How was that? Because southern Italy is quite undiscovered in terms of the bike, and it's, it's to all intents and purposes, quite um, underdeveloped infrastructure-wise compared to like where would normal cycle where would normally cycle somewhere like Tuscany or the lakes isn't it yeah uh, well it was absolutely brutal <laughs> the whole race um <laughs> did you see some pictures of it probably yes yeah it looked insane uh, it, i mean the concept of it is making it as hilly as possible i think so it's um just to give you a few numbers so it's like a thousand almost 1,200 kilometers, and it was 20, over 26,000 meters of climbing. So it's literally just going up and down hills. It's like one hill after the other. And it absolutely exceeded my expectations hill-wise. It was like much more than I expected. I expected still some like rolling bits, and there was like one rolling bit, and you were falling asleep in that rolling bit because this is like these uh, 1,200 kilometers are done by the winners in under three days. And I knew that. And I know that I personally can't do two nights without sleep. So for me, it was clear that I wouldn't have a chance to, to win this race like in first place. So I didn't have that ambition um, with a place, but I still wanted to, to do it fast. So I, I wanted to give it my best. And I yeah, basically slept two, two hours twice. Um, so four hours in total in hotels that I booked two hours before, which was, I think, quite efficient for me. I didn't even take a shower. So I just walked into that hotel, fell on the bed <laughs> slept for two hours and then woke up and cycled off um it, so I think I couldn't have done any better but I was absolutely wrecked afterwards and I had like I did have a lot of knee pain on that race um and it was quite hard to be honest um to endure all of that I I don't want to take painkillers on such races um, because yeah on the one hand because I think a question of principle and I for myself decided that I don't want to do that if it's not absolutely necessary and I, I didn't take any painkillers so it was quite quite hard in that uh, respect and then also I was super tired and um, yeah after the race I just couldn't eat proper food or proper amounts of food for about two days um, because my stomach was wrecked. I just ate so much. I probably like, I, I mean, I'm reason, my, my reasoning is that I probably just gave my stomach too, too much sweets. <laughs> like too, too much Arancini. <laughs> yeah. It was just, yeah, maybe, maybe also that. So yeah. And then also, um, one thing that was suboptimal was that I had a series of night shifts right before the start of the race. So I basically had a series of night shifts, then flew, like took a plane to Sicily and then started one day later or so. So it was like two days off until the start. And I just couldn't really get my rhythm back to day rhythm um, or I, I like I just spent so much time sleeping in Sicily. Um, it was a very, very tough race. And yeah, but to say one very, very positive thing 
the route was amazing. So I think it was the most consistently beautiful um, fixed route that I've ever been confronted with. Because so Juliana Boring, the organizer, she also so she was um, the only woman finishing the first edition of the TCR. And so she lives there in South Italy. And I think she knows some really good roads. So it was all calm roads, uh, a ferry crossing, um, nice views a lot of the time. Um, so we visited the fifth largest Jesus Christ statue. How are the switchbacks? It's like 20, 20 switchbacks, switchbacks up to the statue. Yeah, it's, it was amazing, really. And you get a really nice view over the Amalfi Coast. It's a, a, an incredibly beautiful part of Europe, I think, and it's definitely worth a visit. But if you don't want to torture yourself, then don't do it within that race. <laughs> yeah, so this is really... A very, very tough race. And for me, it was definitely tougher than the TCR. Um, because the TCR is like drinking half a bottle of wine for 10 days in a row. And the two volcano sprint was like getting massively drunk <laughs> and drinking two liters of vodka um, in like one night. And that's the two volcanoes, friend. You're wrecked afterwards. <laughs> and after yeah. TCR, I mean, I was also physically exhausted for quite some time, like weeks to months. But um, it was not that kind of hangover feeling after the ride. Um, I was basically joyful. I was happy. And um, I could move every part of my body. And that was not the case after the two volcanoes, sprint, just because... Um, my knee hurt so much and like it was just overload for my body I think for two days and I mean just on that are you seeing because I know the two volcano sprints it was the third edition and they had like a hundred hundred people on the start line compared to something like 15 in the first edition and so since I guess you kind of got into ultra cycling with the TCR are you also seeing more women on the start line as well um, it, that's a good question. I haven't counted how many women we had at the start line of the two volcano sprint, but it was something, I think something around 20 ish, but like, give or take. So I don't think I'm in this community for long enough yet to see a trend. Um, one thing that many organizers are doing and one thing that I really um, appreciate is that they make it easier for women to enter. So especially the TCR is massively overbooked every time they get something like, I think they got over a thousand applications for 250 places um, in 2019 or in 2020. Um, and most of them are from men. Um, and what uh, Anna Haslock, the, the TCR organizer does is she prioritizes women until there is 50% female participants, which we are very far away from at the moment. And I think overall, you could say that about 10% of long distance cyclists are female at the moment. So they prior like some races prioritize women. Um, and I really appreciate that because it's like, um, I, I think women are confronted with quite a lot of um, obstacles which may be explicit or implicit. Um, one, one example for an explicit one would be that they don't get that much money um, in, in pro racing. 
we all know this, um, but it still seems to be accepted. And then um, an implicit one would be that maybe girls aren't pushed that much to doing sports as boys are because sweating may not be considered beautiful and girls should be beautiful in the eyes of their parents or in the eyes of whoever they are influenced by. Um, so this would be an implicit one or the fact that at some point females may get pregnant and that may lead to not being able to do physically super exhausting things. So they may drop out of doing sports in that time when, when they get pregnant and have children. And then of course, the, the point where um, females statistically still do more housework, more um, childcare related work um, than men. And that also takes time off their potential cycling time. So um, I think it's quite nice if organizers reduce that last obstacle of getting a place on a race by prioritizing women um, or other underrepresented groups. It's not only women, it's also some nationalities that are underrepresented and um, some demographic groups, some people who maybe just don't have the financial means to, to pay for that. So, yeah. That's quite nice. And I mean, do you think as a whole, obviously, is it good that ultra cycling is becoming more popular? Um, as you said, like it, everything's getting, like there's more events, there's more people signing up. Is it a good thing? Um, I, well, yes. I, for me, uh, ultra cycling is a great experience and it's a, an experience of your own physical limits and it's a way of pushing these limits. And that's what, what's really making it a... Um, a worthwhile experience, I think, that in the beginning you may have expectations how well you might be doing or what time you might be able to do the distance in, um, and then sometimes you exceed your expectations, and that's great. And even if you don't do that, then you have a great cultural experience. You you do get some fresh air. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's probably just like, yeah, it's a nice thing if you like cycling. So um, generally, I, I do like that trend. I think in parallel, some parts of the sport are commercializing quite a bit. So um, I think some people can by now live off that by having sponsors and having yeah, partnerships. Um, and that changes the sport a bit. So I think um, before you mentioned that the community is so cool because everyone has a day job. And that's um, I think that's changing a bit. And I think that may change the character if you are like comparing yourself to people, to some people who are spending very, very significant parts of their life with the possibility to cycle while other people have a day job. And yeah, that takes away a bit of the character if more and more people are able to do that. But I think that still, this is such a special sport and you won't get super rich by doing paid partnerships in ultra cycling. So I still think it will only be very dedicated people who do that. So I, yeah, it's not, it's not something that I would prohibit on these races that yeah, like people with a no day job or no other real obligations enter. And also, I mean, still among people with a day job, there are different day jobs. So there are some people who are carpenters and then there are some people who are bike mechanics who may um, 
have a bit more knowledge about repairing a bike. And that's also not unfair. I mean, it's, of course, a bit unfair if that person is able to repair something that you can't repair. Um, but still, it's nothing to blame them for because it's, yeah, I mean, um, that's what what they are working. And I mean, I may have more knowledge as a doctor about my body and I may be able to interpret my my symptoms or whatever body signs I experience better. Is there, so is there a bucket list event for you, Fiona? Is there something on that you really want to do in terms of ultra cycling? Even if it's not a race, is there sort of a, something in the top of the head? Yeah. Um, I have a lot of countries that I would like to cycle in. It's not a, a particular event, to be honest. Um, I think for me, it's still more about discovering new places and I haven't cycled in Asia so far. So, um, I would really like to go to Japan. Um, Japan is super hilly and yeah, it just looks impressive. So I, I, yeah, that's um, one country I would like to visit with my bike. And yeah, I think the, the rest of Asia is also super interesting culturally. It's of course a bit further, further away than the rest of Europe um, for me as a middle European person so it's quite a lot of adventure and some countries like I'm, I'm hesitant to, to visit some countries alone as a woman to be honest um, for safety reasons but still I think Asia is quite quite uh, on top of my bucket list of countries to visit and then um, also South America I've never been to South America um, and I yeah, I would like to visit the ends and um, yeah, cycle in that mountain range. Before we go, Fiona, because I realise you've taken an hour of your time, and as you we mentioned, you were on the night shift last night, so you should really get yourself some sleep. Although we have learned that you can only you can function off a forty minutes sleep at a time. So it's, <laughs> it's okay. Um, one thing we did want to mention is, and and I think it's quite prevalent at the moment, is the sort of eco credentials of cycling at this moment. Obviously, we've as we speak the cop 26 meeting is going on not too well quite far away from me and emma up in glasgow where the world leaders are coming together and making very big promises on how we're going to solve the world um and i mean emma you you had some opinions on this in terms of what how you see sort of a paradoxical nature of cycling yeah, I mean, I'm just interested to hear what you think, Fiona, in terms of like, obviously, cycling can be a really eco brilliant, like, way of transport, you know, but then it's also, there's a lot of the industry can be really polluting, just in terms of like, you know, the fast fashion element to cycling clothing, the the X amount of pro cars that follow the pro peloton um, that are yet to be electric. So I'm just interested to kind of get your take on cycling as a paradox and I guess kind of what role you hope like whether you hope more people will be getting into cycling not just in Germany but kind of all around the world and just because I know that you know Omar Di Felice because he cycled to COP26 um which was like his big event and it's just really interesting to see it kind of getting a bit more traction as well in the media yeah so I mean one sentence ago I said I want to cycle in Japan and of course how do I get to Japan well if I don't cycle there, I'm probably polluting um, the environment. Um, it's a thin line. 
to be walked, I think, um, because of course, all these experiences that I have been doing um, during these long distance events wouldn't have been possible for me as a full-time working person at the moment um, without using a plane here here or there. I do compensate my um, like my CO2 uh, emissions, but um, of course this is like just, yeah, well, it, it may be subtitled uh, Fiona calling a greenwashing herself here. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so th- I mean, that's like how I personally cope with it. Um, in my everyday life, I use the bike for every way that I do. I don't have a car. Um, I sometimes like very, very rarely borrow a car if I really need one. But um, so for me, it's a mode of transport. And I think if everyone would adapt that and like get rid of the cars um, wherever possible, you could not only save so much pollutants and uh, carbon dioxide emissions, it would also be possible um, to save some street space. And um, if you look at, uh, I think there are some quite nice scientific studies about street space allocation and that cars take up so much space, it could be filled with something like 20 bikes. Um, if uh, you would put a bike shelter in that place where a car is parking, um, they, I think um, we should really think about the amount of cars that exists um, in general, because most of the cars stand around not moving most of the time. Um, so that's like the part of the story that I've been thinking about quite a bit. So uh, about this pro peloton stuff, well, I don't like it. I am not that much into pro cycling anyways. I don't really follow it, to be honest, um, because I, yeah, I dislike quite a few aspects about pro cycling in general. It's like, on the one hand, the the large amount of doping scandals, I just don't like any way of faking something in your body. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I just don't like it. Um, and then this whole thing of being accompanied by cars, that's exactly what I dislike about the pro peloton. And I think it's just a completely different sport to what I am doing. Um, so most of my rides during the year, if I look at the, to- the total amount of kilometers that I do, I would say something like 20% happen within races, 20 to 30% happen within races to which I may travel, but the entire rest is like loops around my home. And this is entirely, I, I would say, eco-friendly um, if I don't consider what I buy at the supermarket on the stop um, or at the gas station, which may be not so eco-friendly, but um, like in the end, I think I'm that's quite a good way of spending your free time and an eco-friendly way of getting around. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think I basically agree with you. Um, and the point about street space, I think we could get some nicer looking cities if we got rid of cars in a large nu- in large numbers and also so very recently i had a like a little um documentary recording with a film team and they basically wanted they had an interview at my home and um and then they wanted to get some shots of me riding somewhere and i suggested a place quite near to my home something like 30 minutes by bike and 
they first they initially wanted to take me into their car and they said I insisted to 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 ride there to that segment of that it was basically a Strava segment that they wanted to get uh, the, the shot on and um I arrived before them so yeah it was it was faster than they were I think <laughs> I think cycling is sometimes not only the the most eco-friendly or one of the more eco-friendly ways to get around but it's also um a fast way in cities around but of course like if people live 50 kilometers away from work then it's it's you can't really force them to use a bike for that but i think um getting good public transport and in cities like in the city center prohibiting cars um would be a large step forward and it would give us a better life <laughs> in some aspects yeah Uh, Fiona, before we let you go, you've been a great guest. Um, so what what race shall we be seeing you on the start line of next? What's your next big ultra race that you've got in the diary? Yeah, um, so this year, no more races. <laughs> so um, I, I will be working on the ICU um, quite a lot and probably not be able to train that much over the winter, but um, or like train that much on the bike during the winter. Um, but in the spring, I had been planning to do race through Poland for two years already and was postponed then. And then um, it happened in um, in autumn this year, but uh, I was doing the, the two volcano sprints, so I didn't do that. But I want to do it next year. And that happens in late May. Um, and I'm absolutely looking forward to it. So the start is quite close to where I live. It's just over the border into Poland. And um Yeah, so I can go there by train, which is an eco-friendly way of um, getting to the start line of a race. And uh, yeah, then it's something like, the, it's very similar to the TCR. It's um, about 1,500 kilometers in total distance. So it doesn't destroy your body that much, but still um, it's a free route event, which makes it more strategic, which is something I like. And then um, it has four checkpoints, or at least the last editions all had four checkpoints, Um The, the upcoming ones are still to be uh, released. And um, yeah, so that's something that I'm going to be doing in late May. And then very recently, the TCR checkpoints um, were announced for next year. So I just, fingers crossed, it's happening next year after having been postponed for two years. Um, and I absolutely love the the route um, or the checkpoints. So um, the start is going to be in Harrisbergen, uh, which is in Belgium, where the TCR start was a couple of times already. And I, I've been there because um, I, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been cycling there in the summer quite a bit. My parents live quite close to the German-Belgian border. So I visited my parents and um, cycled there and that was quite cool. So that's going to be absolutely, absolutely memorable. Um, and then the first checkpoint is Krupka, which is very, very close to where I live at the moment. It's um, a place where I've been 10 times this year already, probably at least. Um, it's Yeah, it's very well known here in the region. It's um, exactly at the border between Germany and the Czech Republic. And then the next checkpoint is Pasogavia, which is um, 
in the Alps. Um, and then we go to Montenegro. Then we go to um, Transalpina in Romania. And then the finish is in Burgas, where the TCR started in 2019. So it's going to be like going back to where it started for me. Um, yeah. And yeah, so for me, it's um, the perfect route. I love it. And um, I already started plotting my route. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to do that next year. Well, good luck with your preparations for that, Fiona. And again, thank you very much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to join us and talk about ultra cycling and the like. So there we have it, Fiona Kolbinger, um, TCR winner, uh, oncologist and all-round excellent cyclist. Uh, Emma, that was a great little interview, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, she's just extraordinary. Yeah. And it's like, it's just you get a surgeon, you get ultra-cycling, you put them together and it's like a magical combination. Because obviously, Emma, for the listener, to give some context, you're very into your ultra-cycling uh, you, when you joined cyclists, one of the big things that you wanted to talk about more and look at more was was the ultra cycling scene. And in fact, you did some ultra cycling of yourself yet last year, didn't you? <laughs> I did, yes. Yeah, slightly different level to Fiona Colbinger. <laughs> so what did you do? I did 700 kilometres in seven days around the south of the UK. Oh, south of the UK, which, as we all know, listeners, is the hardest place in the UK to ride. Uh, so where did you where did you start and finish? Where did you head? I started uh, near Newbury, which is where my parents are from, and yeah. then I headed down to the New Forest, and then I headed across to um, oh gosh, what's it called? Like near Bognor Regis. Yep. Um, and then I kept going along to Eastbourne, and then I went to Folkestone, and then I went on a little like day trip to Deal. Is it called Deal? Um, Deal, yeah, next to Dover. Yeah, next to Dover. And then I hopped back to a place in Tunbridge Wells uh, where my friend lives. And then I went to Guildford where my other friend lives. That's Royal, that's royal Tunbridge Wells, by the yeah, way. Yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> and then, yeah, so then I went to Guildford and then I cycled back to Newbury. And it was, I'd never done anything like it before. And I, like, my my biggest training ride was 40k. And <laughs> that was a real Jesus. learning curve. And you managed to do it. Yeah. Like, and I think in my head, I, I kind of never thought, I didn't ever picture the finish line because I thought I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, I'd never practiced riding with um, my bike with my bags on. So the first time I got on my bike with my bags on, I was like, well, this is a totally different kettle of fish. Another learning curve. Um, and like one day I forgot to eat. Um, and then there was like massive of hills by Eastbourne and I was like why am I having such a sense of humour failure and I found this chip shop and I just sat on the side of the road like got this large thing of chips <laughs> it was not pretty <laughs> but I felt a lot better but yeah like so, so did you put away 50 snicker bars in two days I mean I think it was close to it I reckon <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. god that's it that's really impressive considering my closest that I've got to ultra cycling was this summer me and two friends were like we're going to cycle down to Portsmouth stay the night and then cycle back and it was only 135k from where i lived portsmouth we'd done it the next day we woke up and we went can't really be bothered so we just cycled 50k along to brighton and then got trainer oh it's still nice though like... yeah but that wasn't that's like you did like you'd like never prepared and did like seven days 700k jonah colbing is out here doing the yeah. tcr and i'm riding to portsmouth <laughs> and going oh you know what that's I don't really fancy going over on the bike now. I'm just going to grab on the train. Yeah, but so. I think also if you haven't, like, I told loads of people that I was doing it. 
So like once you've told people you're doing it, you kind of have to do it. What was the best what was the best place you visited on that seven hundred K? I think to be fair, going through is it called like the Surrey Hills? Some like really? Tunbridge Tunbridge it was so beautiful. Tunbridge Wells, yeah. well that's Kent for you. Kent is the yeah, garden. It was, but and because like, I, I thought cycling on the coast would be really pretty. But it's just windy, actually, isn't it? So windy. And okay. I went to that place and they're like Dungeness because I was like fascinated by it. I was like, Oh, the big uh, nuclear power plant. Yeah, and I went there and I was like, Oh my god, I'm not going here again. <laughs> it wasn't like it was just weird. Yeah, you got you got Dungeness on one side, and then the other side is a place called Canberra Sand. Yes, yeah, it's I went beach, through there. Yeah, yes. um, but actually, no, the New Forest—that was my favourite place to cycle. Um, Did you almost hit a wild horse? No, no, I didn't actually. I was very. Um, I just love like sneaking around them, and all the cars are like oh, waiting there for hours, and I'm like whoop. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that's, really that's good though. I can't believe you didn't like Dungeness. That's <laughs> a real shock. Why wouldn't you like a nuclear power plant on the coast? I just don't know why. I thought it would be like a good like like place to go visit. It looks quite post-apocalyptic, doesn't it? Yeah. It looks like oh. you're in some like a Cold War. It is weird. Thriller. All the stuff on the beach. They've got all these like not ruins, but like random bits of machinery. I don't know what it is, but it was just creepy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was great to hear about your exploits, Emma, and it was great oh, yeah. to have you on the podcast for the first time. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. No worries. Um, we're going to wrap up there. As ever, Lindsay, thank you very much for producing the show. If you like this episode, make sure to give it a like, a follow, subscribe, share it with all your mates, whether they like cycling or not. We don't really care as long as they <laughs> listen. Um, and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks' time, and this time with an episode with Mr. Roman Bardet. Um, but until then, Emma, thank you again for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. All right, speak to you later. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.